Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, Peter has just recounted his experience with James and John in the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw the glory of Christ and when they heard the voice of God the Father testify uh, that Christ is his beloved Son. And then we read in connection with that in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Okay, take note of that if you would. Peter is saying here, we have something even more reliable than my experience that I just described to you. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. And I might pause there just long enough to say that I am very grateful to be a part of a confessional church because no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. We subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith we subscribe to a doctrinal substandard that recognizes the truth of God's word, okay? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then I'll add to our reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's begin in verse 15 and read the three verses at the end of the chapter where Paul writes, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. A couple of Sundays ago, I preached a message from James' epistle in which I stressed in my introduction the fact that James was not impressed at all with what you might call superficial religion. That's a very sharp sword, you could say, that epistle. Very convicting, very challenging because James is not impressed with those whose lives are not actually impacted by the gospel, who may make professions of faith and yet have little or nothing to show for it. Not impressed with James is. A key verse in James' epistle, I think, would be chapter 1 and verse 22, where he calls upon his readers be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. 
rather interesting to note there, isn't it, that it is possible for a professor in Christ to deceive himself if he hears the word but is not a doer of the word. A careful analysis of James' epistle reveals just how many ways the gospel impacts the life of a true Christian. You could say it impacts his view of God. It impacts his view of himself. It impacts his view of sin and his view of trials and temptations. It impacts the way he treats others, and it impacts the way he talks. Basically, you could say that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that in salvation, old things pass away and all things become new, I think you could say that the best commentary you can find on that statement by Paul is found in the epistle of James. His commentary on the things that are elaborated, which I just mentioned. I also referred in that sermon to a book, not inspired book, okay, written by Dr. Paul Tripp entitled, Do You Believe? This book covers 12 historic doctrines of the faith and divides the treatment of each doctrine into two categories. There's an exposition of the doctrine in one chapter, which is followed by a follow-up chapter that is devoted to how that particular doctrine should play out in the Christian's life. I'm going to borrow a little bit from Paul Tripp's book in the coming weeks, as the Lord leads. I don't want to simply read his book to you, I'll leave it up to you to get the book. I recommend it as one you should get. And though I'm not going to read the book, I may borrow, in fact, I will borrow some quotes from it. I do want to take a number of the doctrines he covers and subject them to the same treatment that he gives them. I may not cover all the doctrines that he covers, and I may add a few that he doesn't cover. I've come to recognize that in our day, we as Christians are facing a great challenge. It's the challenge of bridging the gap between what we affirm as articles of faith and how we live in the light of those articles of faith. Listen to this introductory paragraph by Paul Tripp, and you'll see what I mean. His introduction is entitled, The Dangerous Dichotomy. Listen to what he writes. I found myself in yet another frustrating conversation with one of the most theologically knowledgeable men I have known. There was no theological hallway I could walk down with him that he hadn't traversed again and again. He was confident, defensive, and ready for the next debate. The problem was that I was not there to debate him. I was there to help him. But he was nearly impossible to help. 
I was his counselor, and the reason he needed counsel was that there was a huge dysfunction-producing gap between what he knew so well and the way he lived. His marriage was crumbling. None of his children respected him. And his friends found him more than hard to handle. In his home, this master of the theology of God's grace was a man of ungrace. He was known more for impatient criticism than patient mercy. He could exegete and explain the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but in the situations and relationships of his daily life, he had to be in control. He had an airtight Christology, but unlike Christ, he did not love well, serve well, or forgive well. His wife had asked if I would counsel them because their marriage was imploding. He made it very clear that he didn't think he needed to be counseled. To say that there was a contrast between the gorgeous theology he had spent so much time studying and the way he lived would surely be an understatement. The author goes on to cite other examples in that introduction from different types of people and circumstances, all of which illustrated the same thing. A huge gap between what professing Christians know and how they live. From other sources I've read, including blog posts and articles from various Christian publications, it's become apparent to me that this is no small matter, but is rather widespread to an alarming degree. I remember reading an article on the Gospel Coalition website in which a person was described very much like the one that Paul Tripp just described. And I learned after reading the article that this article had made its way to the top ten among those articles that had been clicked on and read by various readers, which was a sure indication to me then, as it is now, that uh, this isn't something rare that we're dealing with. Indeed, I would go so far as to say, as Paul Tripp says the same thing of himself, that to varying degrees, this is a matter that confronts us all. So how well do we do with the issue of what I would say, bridging the gap? In other words, shortening the distance between what we know and how we live. Well, let's begin this morning with the doctrine that Paul Tripp begins with, which is the doctrine of Scripture. And hence, the portions we read a moment ago from 2 Peter and 2 Timothy. The doctrine of Scripture, and we'll look not only at the doctrine itself, but how the doctrine should affect the way we live. Bridging the gap, then, would be my title for this message, for this series, if this grows into a series. Bridging the gap, starting with the doctrine of Scripture. That's my theme, that's my title. 
And the question I want to raise and endeavor to answer is simply this. What does it take to bridge the gap between what we know about the Word of God and how we live in the light of what we know? What does it take to bridge that gap? Well, consider with me, first of all, that if we're going to bridge that gap, we we better start out by recognizing that there is a gap. Recognizing the gap. That's the starting point. And, and, And let me begin under this heading by simply pointing out something that I know I have mentioned probably countless times but I want to set it before you now with particular emphasis, which is to say the Bible was never intended by God to be a theological textbook, so to speak. Now, I've got to be very careful here in what I say because it is true that we do learn our theology from the Bible. In fact, you better not be gaining your theology from any other source unless it be the source of nature. Theologians basically recognize uh, two books, so to speak, that reveal God to us. There is the book of nature. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist tells us. That is what theologians refer to as general revelation. There are things revealed to us about God in general revelation, his eternal power and his Godhead, as Paul says in Romans 1, as well as a sense of our accountability to him, Paul says at the end of Romans. So natural revelation is good for some things, but natural revelation does not have anything to say about salvation. That takes another kind of revelation, what theologians refer to as special revelation, and that is what we find in the Bible. So it is true we learn our theology from the Bible, especially as our theology pertains to salvation. Our theology must come from the Bible. The Bible is our sole trusted source for what we know about God. But that's not all the Bible does. There are those that treat the Bible as if theology was the sole purpose that the Bible served. Consequently, you can find men that live ungodly lives that sort of make a hobby out of the theology of the Bible. They store knowledge in their heads about what the Bible says about God, but their lives are not affected. I remember many years ago, and it was several now, some of you might remember this person, I won't bother to name him, but he was a man that one of our members met who was in prison serving time in prison, and while he was in prison, uh, he devoted himself to the study of God's Word. I suppose he might as well. He had nothing else to do. And he stumbled across some very good resources while he was in jail, not the least of which was Ligonier Ministries. And this member from our church used to visit this man regularly, 
Before he was done, I was visiting this man regularly as well, having good discussions with him on various topics of theology. And then the time came when at last he was released from prison. And you know, once that man got out of prison, he sank like a brick. Right back to the same people he hung out with before he was arrested. Right back to the same sins. All he had done was made an impressive hobby out of theology, and it really didn't have any abiding impact on his life. I remember calling him once he got out of jail. Where have you been? You know, why have we stopped meeting? Why aren't you in church? And his remark, I've never forgotten it. He said to me, I've decided to take a break from God. Well, can you imagine that? Taking a break from God, your creator, the one who you would profess has redeemed you. Uh, taking a break from him. And what does that mean except I've made the decision to go back to sin? Is what he meant. In answer to our shorter catechism question, what do the scriptures principally teach? A twofold answer is given. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The gap enters the picture when a Christian treats the scriptures as if they were intended solely to teach us what we're to believe concerning God and practically overlook the part of the answer that tells us that they're also intended to teach us the duty that God requires of us. Now the scriptures themselves affirm that they are intended to govern our conduct and our thinking and our attitudes and our words. Listen to these words from Christ that he spoke as he brought his Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion. This is found in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, Christ says, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. You see the contrast our Lord is drawing here now? The doers and the not doers. Those that do them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see the connection there that Christ himself makes between hearing and doing? Oh, the man referred to who does not Christ's sayings. You might argue uh, with regard to that man that he heard them, he knew them, he may be very familiar with them, but he did not do them, in which case Christ calls him a fool. Add to this statement by Christ the familiar statement from James that I already referenced a moment ago. 
James 1.22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We might add to that Paul's word in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. I won't take the time to qualify that statement just now. Maybe we'll have to come back and look at it again. I think the law that Paul has in mind there, arguably you could say, is the law of the gospel. So when I speak of bridging the gap, I'm referring to the gap between hearing and doing. If we're going to bridge that gap, we must know exactly what is meant by such a gap. Christ and James and Paul make it quite plain that the gap that must be bridged is the gap between hearing and doing. So now we know what we're talking about, okay? We have some idea in mind of the gap that is in view when I speak of bridging the gap. Let's move on to consider next that in order to bridge that gap, secondly, we must first of all hear the word. We must hear the word, okay? We can't possibly bridge the gap between hearing and doing if hearing never takes place to begin with. The thing that James calls for in his epistle is not that his readers cease from hearing and then become doers instead. We're not dealing with a contrasting dichotomy now in which you have to choose between hearing and doing. No, he writes, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. I say he's not creating a divide between hearers and doers. He's only pointing out that being hearers only doesn't make you wrong. It just simply makes you incomplete. You haven't followed through. The point I'm now making is that before you can be a doer, you must first be a hearer. And that leads to an important question. And a simple question, do you spend time in God's Word? Do you spend time in God's Word? Do you read the Bible? Do you read it consistently? I know we're coming up on the end of the year, okay? And it's usually toward the end of the year that I make a plug for Bible reading schedules. You can find any number of them, some of them which are quite ambitious. I've seen one that would take you through the Bible ten times over the course of a year. Okay? Um, I don't think that's for everyone. I've never done it. Um, but you can find in varying degrees, you know, schedules that'll take you through 
the Bible in a year, through the New Testament in a year. Uh, and I'm not so much concerned with what kind of schedule you adopt or how long it takes you to get through the Bible in a year, in two years, in five years. What I am concerned is, uh, are you reading your Bible and are you reading it consistently? One very key factor that will contribute to you reading the Bible consistently will be how much you value that book that is given to us from God. Let me read to you in this regard another portion from Paul Tripp's book. What does it look like to live in light of the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of the Word of God. Well, if you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, preserved by God for you, wouldn't it be the most valuable, esteemed, treasured, and well-used possession in your life? Would you not love the moments when you could sit with it, read it carefully, study its content, meditate upon its implications? Wouldn't you commit yourself to being an avid reader and a lifelong student of the Word of God? Wouldn't you work to be sure that you have understood and interpreted it correctly? Wouldn't you treasure the teachers and preachers whom God has raised up to walk you through His Word? Wouldn't you want to make sure that everything you desire, think, say, and do was done in a joyful submission and careful obedience to the Word of God? Wouldn't you want to apply it to every area of your life? Wouldn't you run to its comfort and heed its call? Wouldn't it have more influence over your decisions than your friends or Google or the voices on Twitter? Wouldn't biblical literacy and theological knowledge be your lifelong quest? Wouldn't you be looking for every opportunity to share its glorious message with others? And wouldn't you grieve those moments when you have to confess that you ignored or resisted its message? Wouldn't it be the thing that shapes the way you approach every area of your life? Wouldn't that quiet time when you separate yourself from other people and other responsibilities, and it is just you, your Lord, and His Word be your favorite part of the day? Wouldn't you give God heartfelt praise for the amazing gift of His Word every day? I dare say how much you read it, how consistently you read it, uh, will be traceable to what kind of value you place on it. Dr. Tripp then goes on to lament the fact that the Bible is not valued nearly enough by many that name the name of Christ. Many of us are only fed from it for one hour each week as we gather together for worship. No wonder it doesn't influence our sense of identity, the way we make decisions, the shape of our friendships, the way we approach our education, the way we pursue our jobs and careers, the way we approach romance and marriage, the way we parent our children, how we deal with conflict, how we handle success and failure, the things we do with our money. 
where we look for fulfillment, how we deal with difficulty, the way we deal with media and entertainment, our relationship to the body of Christ. Oh, it ought to impact us in every one of those areas, shouldn't it? Now, what Paul Tripp is describing you this morning, dear believer, it's time for you to take stock of what you have in the Word of God. It's time to slow down and think not only of the rich treasure you have in God's Word, but think also of the rich heritage of those martyrs who gave their lives in order to publish and distribute it. Oh, how much it meant to the Reformers. How much it meant to William Tyndale, who was burned at a stake for having translated it into English and distributed it. It is through this book, you see, that we not only acquire our knowledge of God and our duty to God, but it's through this book that we enter into communion with God. And this takes me to my next and final point about bridging the gap between hearing and doing. If we're going to bridge the gap, we must recognize the gap. Then we must hear the word. Consider with me finally that if we're going to bridge the gap, we have to internalize the word. We have to internalize it. Now, I realize at the outset here that I'm speaking of something that's impossible. Internalizing the word. This is the work of God's spirit. There are, however, things that we can do in connection with this. You see, in order to bridge the gap between hearing and doing, that work must be something that begins in you from the inside and works itself outward rather than working from the outside apart from anything wrought in you. One might argue that the Pharisees in Christ's day could give very clear impressions that they were both hearers and doers of the word. Oh, to have seen them and heard them, uh, you might conclude that they bridged the gap admirably. But listen to Christ's diagnosis of their spiritual condition. It's found in Matthew 23 and verse 27. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. In the verse before that diagnosis given by Christ, he tells them what must first take place. Verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. You see how bridging the gap requires an internalizing of the word. Something has to be wrought 
in you. When Paul wrote his first epistle to the Thessalonians, he explained to them how the word had worked in them. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He writes, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is that is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh in you that believe. In that verse, we learn two very important things that can assist us when it comes to internalizing the word. We see from the Thessalonian Christians how they first received the word of God. They received that word as it was preached to them, and they received it in the right way. They received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, and that word received means literally to associate with oneself in any familiar or intimate act or relation. They were that close to the word. They received it, and the text goes on to say they believed it, and in believing it, they didn't simply give assent to it. They knew in the depths of their hearts the source of it. The word they heard was not man's word or man's opinion. It was God's word. And it came to them with convicting and convincing authority that it was from God. The verse says further that this word effectually worked in them. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, most often when you read that term effectual, you're reading a term that pertains to supernatural power. Galatians 2 and verse 8, Paul says, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles effectual and mighty. You see the parallel words there? The same uh, spirit, you could say, that wrought in Peter made his ministry effectual, fruitful to the Jews. Well, the same was mighty in Paul toward the Gentiles. Ephesians 3 and verse 7 whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. This matter of internalizing God's word then is of the utmost importance because it teaches us that the right approach to the Bible is not merely an academic approach, it must be a spiritual approach. And I fear that the more common approach to it is largely academic, and this can account for the gap between the hearing and the doing of the word. Call to mind that theologically astute man that Paul Tripp referenced in the introductory chapter of his book, the man was skilled enough to discuss and debate any area of theology you would care to bring up with him. 
I dare say that that man probably fit the bill exactly of what Christ would call a whited sepulcher. Quite impressive. He was intelligent and he was orthodox. And in church, he undoubtedly knew how to talk the talk, so to speak. But the man had no testimony. The man bore no evidence that anything he knew had reached his heart in such a way so as to transform his life. There was little to no tracing the effectual working of the word in his life. And if you're going to avoid being at best a whited sepulcher, then like I say, your approach to the Bible needs to be spiritual and not merely academic. And in order for your approach to be spiritual, there are certain things that you can and should do. You must, for example, begin with an awareness of what you're dealing with each time you open your Bible. You should take a moment, okay? Doesn't have to be long, but take a moment to ponder what it is you're about to read. And take a moment to ponder the issues that are addressed in this book that you're about to open and read. This is the one and only book that teaches you of God and teaches you of Christ. This is the book that reveals to you the triune God, one God in three persons, those persons being the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is the book that's going to teach you where you came from, why you are the way you are. No other book in the world can give you the authoritative account of how God created man in his own image and how man fell into sin. No other book in all the world will explain to you why the world is the way we find it today. I know I shared with you that that had a huge role in convincing me of the truth of the Bible. Look at the state of the world. Here's a book that can explain it in one word, one three-letter word, sin. That explains it all. And the Bible gives you that explanation. It's because of sin. We're a fallen race. We constantly turn each one to his own way. And no other book in all the world can take you back before time began to show you the covenant between the Father and the Son, a covenant in which a plan of salvation was drafted and executed by the life and death of Jesus Christ. No other book in all the world will show you so great salvation that comes to you fully and freely, but which also came at a very high price to God, even the blood of his Son. And no other book will teach you how to live in such a way that you strive for righteousness while avoiding self-righteousness. Boy, there's a challenge that a number of people fail to rise to. Striving for righteousness, but keeping humble. Striving for righteousness, but avoiding self-righteousness. I love the way this is stated in the book of Micah, chapter 6 and verse 8. 
where it says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Bible, you see, is not just a theology textbook or a code of conduct manual or both. Like I say, it does teach you true theology and it does teach you how to live. But if this book is not internalized, then you'll never bridge the gap between hearing and doing the word. You must see this book as the means through which you commune with your God and your Savior. This is how God speaks to you. It comes not only through the words on the pages of the Bible, but it comes as the Spirit of God utilizes the Word of God and drives that Word home to the very depth of your being. That's why the Bible can be referred to as a living word, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick or living, you could say, and powerful. Quick and powerful, another version translates it, living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not just any book can function that way, can it? Now that's how God's word functions as you as a believer are in communion or fellowship with God through his word. There's a reason, you know, why Christ in John's gospel is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a very co close connection, you see, between Christ, the incarnate Word, and Christ, the written Word of God. So in Hebrews chapter 1, at the very beginning of the epistle, we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. God, in these last days, speaks to us by his Son. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen through an audible voice that comes out of the thin air. It happens through the Word of God being taken by the Spirit of God and brought home to the heart of the child of God. And when that happens, we read our Bibles not merely to rehearse stories that we've heard many times before, and not merely to store up information in our minds that pertain to what we believe and what we do as our duty. No, when we approach the Bible spiritually, we approach it prayerfully. There's the key. Don't ever read your Bible without praying over it. We open it with prayer. You should read it in a spirit of prayer. We should contemplate what we've read, all the while communing with God. 
and we look to him to quicken us and thus enable us to see our Savior and following the worship of our Savior and the recognition of who he is and what he's done for us, then and only then are we equipped to put the book into practice. I wonder then, as we bring this study to a close, how are you doing when it comes to bridging the gap between hearing and doing when it comes to your understanding of Scripture. You can't be a doer without first being a hearer. And it becomes very important that you approach the matter of your hearing spiritually by reading your Bible prayerfully, all the while you're reading it, keeping close communion with Christ, who is, after all, the main subject of the book. Oh, may the Lord help us all then to bridge the gap that we don't live as whited sepulchers, but we live rather as those that know and love Christ because we commune with him. He speaks to us. We speak to him. That's communion. And that's what makes this word a living word. May the Lord help us then to approach it the right way that we draw from it the right benefit. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this service to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to recognize the value of what we have in this book that thou hast given us. We know, O Lord, and we've read it from thy book, that this book ultimately comes from God himself. It is true that men had a part in it, but Lord, thy word makes it so plain that they were moved the way thou didst move them in such a way that we can look on this book and consider it to be God-breathed, inspired of thee. Help us to recognize its value. Help us to avail ourselves of its content. And help us, O oh Lord, to internalize it with the help of thy Spirit by approaching it carefully and prayerfully, looking to thee for the help that thou wilt provide. So hear our prayers, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.